Hey, this is Daniel Heafy, and you're listening to Creatively Me. Bringing together talent from the world of film, literature, design, fashion, photography, music, and so much more, Creatively Me serves not just to explore the pleasures and experiences of being a creative mind, but also as an examination of the need for creative expression and the impact it has on our well-being. I'm Daniel Heafy, I'll be your host, and for whatever it is you are passionate about, Creatively Me is your one-stop space for all things art and entertainment. I have been a fan of author Marita Connell McKenna's work since my primary school days, and it is with great pleasure that I welcome her to this episode of Creatively Me. A multi-talented writer with diverse tales for both adults and children, Marita is perhaps best known for her acclaimed debut. Under the Hawthorne Tree, and its two sequels, which have become staples of Irish children's literature. Her other works for children include The Blue Horse, In Deep Dark Wood, and her latest fantasy adventure, Fairy Hill. For adults, she's penned such titles as The Hungry Road and Three Sisters. Winner of several accolades, Marita's work often explores historical events and life's hardships in a gripping way that is accessible to whichever audience she's targeting. Her work has also been adapted for stage and television. Today, Marita Connell McKenna will be discussing the legacy of her work, dealing with her views and reader expectations. She'll also be discussing how she writes, what fuels her creativity, and offers plenty of wisdom to young writers, not least myself. Furthermore, she'll be discussing the importance of Irish children reading books written by Irish authors in highlighting a campaign established by Sarah Webb, Discover Irish Children's Books. It's my pleasure to welcome a woman whose books have been adored not just in her home country, but all around the world. A true talent in the world of literature, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Marita Connell McKenna. So Marita Connell McKenna, a very warm welcome to Creatively Me. Thank you very much, Daniel. I'm delighted to be to be here and to be talking to you today. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a, an honour for me and I've, I've spoken to you before over email and things like that. And I've told you I'm such a big fan, especially since childhood. So. I think my seven, eight-year-old self would probably be a lot less cool about this right now. So. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I meet so many people and it's great because it shows how old I am, first of all. There's so many people that read the books when they were kids, you know, and I'm still meeting them and, and still visiting schools and talking to kids. With, and they're still all reading it as well, which is brilliant. And reading all my books, brilliant. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it must be phenomenal to have such a, a legacy for, you know, in the world of children's literature and definitely want to get into all of that I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that but just just to start off how how are you how is your day going so far how's things fine well I'm I'm up and getting organized to talk to you and then I've loads to do to try and tidy my study I'm kind of working on a new book so I'll be doing that later on hopefully and try and get out forget a bit of air later on as well so that, that's kind of my plan for the day <laughs> I've had a very busy week so today is just kind of more homebound and go for a walk nearby yeah yeah, jam-packed Saturday, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And you are you were born and raised in, in Dublin, I believe. Is that where you are? Yeah, I'm from Dublin. I grew up in Goldstown, and actually I'm not living too far from that still. I'm in between Stroven and Black Rock, and a lovely old house with a big garden, um, and my study overlooks the garden. So I have squirrels in the day, foxes in the evening, and oh, <coughs> my nice. desk out of the all. So it's very nice. I'm a big, messy, cluttered study which only I know where everything is. Well, kind of know where everything is. Oh. So it's great. I, I I really enjoy writing. And I'm just so blessed to be doing what I like and enjoy making stories and writing stories. Well, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because I kind of wanted to start this off by by showing you this. This is my original copy of Under the Hawthorne oh, yes. Trees. Yeah. Um, it's a really nice classic edition of it. It's really battered, which... Yeah is a sign of how much I read it through, through childhood and things like that. But you can even see for the listeners, obviously, won't be oh, your name on it to see that. Yeah. Yeah. My <laughs> terrible eight year old handwriting. But that just shows, you know, I say a lot of the time with the guests in this podcast that I'm a really big fan of the work, but this really does prove it. So yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for that. And that's a great copy to have. You should hold on to that. Now might be valuable because it's, I think that it's the first edition of it. So definitely. Yeah. And signed not by the author, but by an eight year old. So <laughs> mostly worth something um but that's where I wanted to start you know I think it's I think it's one thing to write a book that is well received when it when it comes out and and makes an impact on people but what do you think it is about your work particularly under the Hawthorne tree that has resonated through the years and is there anything you can kind of do to predict that or is that all just chance how no I I, you cannot 
no matter what what you write, you cannot predict how it will go, how it will work. And I just as I, and I think actually um, when you write for children, it's very different because I write for adults as well. But when you're writing for children, um, I think if you start thinking about market and selling the book and all that, you're kind of, it's much more difficult. But if you write a story because you want to write the story, and I wrote the story of Under the Hawthorn Tree for my daughter, I had actually no intention of it ever being published. I just wrote it for her and for my family, for my children. And, um, uh, uh, you know, the book being published was never in my mind when I wrote it mm-hmm. because I was making books at home anyway, making little stories for my children. So it, it hadn't crossed my mind that anyone would want to publish it. But when I did write it, then I wrote very quickly in 12 weeks because uh, I'd always been interested in the famine. But when I wrote it then, um, what happened was um, I was doing a course in children's literature and I had shown some picture books I'd done to my lecturer and she really liked them and actually ended up directing one of the picture books into a publisher, which subsequently came out. Um, but but she when she then she said, oh, and she said, you're doing another story. And I said, I'm doing a bigger story now. It's not a picture book. And she said, I'd really love to read it. And when I gave it to her, she said, look, you have to, you can't let this just be at home. You have to send it to a publisher. And then one of my friends had an older daughter and she read Under the Hawthorn Tree and they lived down in Kilkenny. And one day they were driving back from school or something. They lived in the countryside and there was a big hawthorn tree in the field. I'd only sent them my manuscript, you know, that was all it was, the things I'd written out. And my friend's daughter, Christine, said to my her mum, there's a hawthorn tree, just like the one in the book. And my friend said, what book? And she said, the best book I've ever read. And then my friend phoned me, she said, Christine is talking about Under the Hawthorn Tree. And it wasn't a book, it was just my sheets of paper sent out to them. So between my lecturer saying that to me and then and then my friend's daughter who was older saying it, I just thought, God, maybe, you know, my lecturer is right. And my husband kept saying, why did you just send it? So I did send it into a Brian Press. But as I said, the, the original thing was never to publish it. And but now when I look, it was written very quickly. It's written very, very simply because it was written for children. It wasn't written for an adult. It was written for children. So the language is very simple and very clear. And actually, if you go back in the book, it's actually very, I mean, I wrote it in 12 weeks. The book is actually quite fast paced. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no um, there's no clutter in the book. And that's one thing I've learned with writing with children. If you clutter things, it's a disaster. Like, you probably would say, oh, because I jumped in because I just knew such a tricky subject. I wanted my daughter to read it. And I started off like literally day one is in a cottage, you know, with the baby dying. And and I think by page three, like we're really in trouble, you know, two or three were in trouble. Yeah. So um, really harsh. But I knew what a tricky subject you had. I wanted my daughter not to put, I didn't want to lead in how suddenly the parade was failed. And we were five chapters in before something really big happened. Mm-hmm. I know the parade was failing is a terrible thing and that's big enough. But I wanted to grab her attention. And in a way, I've learned from under the Hawthorn tree and my other books writing to go in, boom, bang, go straight in. And um, you can go back and fill in details afterwards behind, but you have to grab your reader. And especially with children and young people, it's very, well, it's important for adults as well, but with children, it's very important to grab them. And uh, especially when you're writing about something that's tricky, that's difficult, that people wouldn't be rushing to say, I want to buy a book or read it about that. So um, you have to kind of hook them. So in a way, I didn't realise that because I just wrote it naturally without thinking for my daughter. But when I go back and look at it now, years on later, and then there's all these academics that study the books and people who are other writers and publishers. And I've actually learned, you know, from it. And it's written very visually as if everything is like there was a camera there following a camera following what happened. And I think that's why children can visualise it very much and imagine themselves in the story too, because when I write a very visual writer. I always am the person in the story visualising it as if I have a camera there. So um, I think without me knowing it and knowing the techniques of writing, like I loved English in school now and I had to, had done courses on English literature and history and that um, in college, in a night in university. But I probably learned from going to all those things, you know, that um, about English language and the use of language and the use of pace and things like that. But, you know, when you're reading good, good novelists and good writers. Wow, that's, I mean, there's so many things I want to get into there. That's that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I think because this is a creative podcast, I absolutely love hearing the origins of the projects that people are working on. And I think something you said about it just being a gem of an idea and you writing it originally for your daughter, I think is so important because, you know, I think if you go into something, any, any book, any writing project, if you go into it, I guess, thinking about the mass market and and, oh, the oh. and with the intention of it being 
popular or well-liked, I think you're doing yourself a, a disservice, A, because I imagine you're probably going to write something that you don't like, that you just think is just going to sell. And yeah. B, I think, you know, as, as lovely as it can be to to hear people's opinions, you know, especially if they're if they're good, I think that can kind of get in the way of your of your writing, you know, it can be in your head a lot. After, I mean, you had success under the Hawthorne tree, did that affect the work you did going on when you knew you had an audience and you knew that people recognized your work? Did that affect you in a sense that you felt like you had to top what you did before or did you still try and, you know, break it down to just you and and, and whatever you're writing and kind of- Well, well, what happened, well, actually, that's a very good question, Johnny, because what happened the day I went in to meet my publisher when I was nervous as hell and he said about this very difficult book and we don't know will it sell, but we'll take a gamble on it. Mm -hmm. But then he totally floored me because he said, what's your next book about? Mm -hmm. I had no next book. I had written Under the Hawthorne Tree for my daughter. I had three very, I had four small children at home. My little boy was only a baby and he was doing night feeds. And so I had no question of doing another novel for children, you know. But of course, some instinct said to me, you never say to a publisher, you don't have a next book. You lie and say you do have books. So I said, <laughs> oh, yes. And then he said, what do you want to write about, you know? Because and I remember the article about the skivvies, the skivvies, um, the, the nickels of the skivvies. And I said, I'd write a book about a little Irish skivvy who goes to America and works as a maid in a big house. And I just remember my, my publisher went like that, but he's dead now. And he said, oh, my God. He said, a, a book about, oh, he said, that'd be another disaster. He said to me, and I said, well, that's what I want to do, you know. And of course, then I began. And then I hadn't, I had intended to be a totally different book, nothing to do with Under the Hawthorne Tree. I was going to research about the Irish in America. I might even have been a different time. But anyway, so then I began to look at it and I, I said, I want to capture the feeling that my mum and our family had. My sister went back and forth to America. My mum would be in bits of the airport or sometimes yeah, we had to stop her going to the airport because she just gets so upset. And um, so I said, no, I'm, it's capturing also the leaving of family as well as the arriving and making a new life, that what you're leaving behind. I want to capture that in the book too. So, um, and then suddenly I said, maybe Eileen could go to America from under the Hawthorne Tree, but she wouldn't go for me and Michael wouldn't go. And then Peggy wanted to go. So then I wrote, um, I wrote Wildflower Girl. So that was the next. So, but that book then, you know, did really, really well too. And we're very lucky at publishing America. And I'd gone to America to research it and everything to Boston. And, and then the next book was a total curveball again, because and I, I referred to my publisher, he stuck with me through this, but I never, I never gave my book till it was finished. I never really told him really properly what I was writing. I just give it in and it was finished. I quit and post in the door of his place. I think it was driving mad because he, he couldn't commission me to do anything because I had to do my own thing. And I remember I wanted to write about this. I started writing a story about a little girl who was a traveller and she was in a fire. And it was for a book of short stories that were coming out with Penguin, who were my publishers at the time. And they wanted writers from all around the world to contribute a short story. I wrote about this little girl um, who was in a fire. And I just wrote this story about a traveller girl called Katie. But I remember um, I sent it off. And the minute I sent it off, and they said, oh, my God, it's a brilliant story. And they were really happy with it. And it was too long because I kept writing more. And I'm not a short story writer. I can't write short. I hate writing short. I hate writing articles, short stories. I just don't like it. I do a picture book now, but not a short story. But anyway, so um, then they phoned me. And they said they would take it. And then I remember I was going out somewhere to a school. And I saw this kid, and she was a traveler outside the school. And I was going to talk in the school. And she was there on her own as bold as brass and wouldn't go to school and I remember she was she was literally the identical child I'd written about like it was like a ghost had put her sitting there in front of me on a rock going into the school so I went into the school and I said and, and the book was about to go to print and I remember I went in and I said to the nun I'm really sorry it would be free mo mobile phone I had no mobile phone myself that time and I said I have to make an urgent phone call to London I said I'll pay you for the phone call so I went in and made phone to London my editor and I said look I'm really sorry I can't give you I can't give you Blue Horse. I just can't give it to you. And she said, what? I, I, she said, I don't understand. And I said, no, I want to make a story about Katie. I want to write a book about her. And I knew then if I'd given her a short story, it'd be tied up for a few years. And then I managed to get it back. And I had to a few days to turn around and write another story for them, which I did. I got it back. But I knew like it was going to be a lot of research about finding out about travellers and a traveller child's life. I mean, I knew a lot, but I didn't know that much. And I wanted to spend time with traveller kids and see their schools and their lives. Like, you know, I had some friends who were travellers. So. But I remember um, I knew Michael O'Brien. Like if I went to him and said I was doing that book, now he would have gone, 
like, what the hell is this, you know, after the other two. So I actually was very lucky. Somebody said, oh, yeah, the Arts Council are giving grants. And it was the only time I ever got an Arts Council grant. And uh, so I said, I'll, I'll put my name in for it anyway. And I remember there was a guy called Lar Cassidy. God rest him, he's dead now. He's a very nice man. I remember going in and having to meet him and, and talk about the book. And I said, look, I know I'm not a traveller, but I'd like to write this story. And I said, but I have to research it. And so they gave me a small grant towards it. So then I got time to write Blue Horse. And then when I had it done, then Michael took it and published it. And she got Book of the Year Award here in Ireland. It was just fantastic. And it was published in a few other countries as well. And it's still used in classes and still read, which is amazing. And um, I'm so glad I did it. So kind of in a way picked out of the, the box um, stories you wouldn't expect me to write. And I'm still doing that whether it's my adult books or my children's books, I like to do something different and I don't like to be tied. I mean, probably, you know, if I kept writing the same the same book over and over again, I'd probably be a very, very wealthy lady. Um, but I've always gone in different directions. I'm very lucky that my Irish publisher, and Brian Press, Michael O'Brien, when well, he's dead now, and it's on Ivan's there now, and my English publishers, my editor's not there, they've all given me my head which is unusual, but they've all given me my head. Mm-hmm. I refuse to be tied down into doing the same thing. But I, I think that's I think that's your your strength as a writer. I mean, even from a, a young age and seeing the other the other children that were in my class in primary school, I think we gravitated towards your stories. It, it, it was interesting, you're talking about your publishers and how they're saying like, you know, this might be too dark for children, this might be too intense for children. But I think it was actually those elements that made us gravitate towards those stories because it didn't feel like we were being spoken down to or we were being patronized i think children can actually handle a great deal more than we give them than we give them credit for so i think that's a huge um i think it's a huge sign of respect almost you know it it didn't feel like we were kind of you know again just being spoken down to is that a line that you kind of have to walk in your in your mind when you're writing like how am i going to convey this to to children in a way particularly historical novels where there can be a lot of dark things happening in the past where you have to say I have to convey this truthfully to really depict this, the subject matter that occurred, but not too truthfully that it you know, scares the, the reader yeah. in any way. Well, you see, when I'm writing, I become the character. So I became the child character. So then it was a very easy thing for me then to write it because I just became the character. And what, I've, what I do when I'm writing, I just, what that child is seeing and happening and thinking about. You've got to remember, like, you know, say during the famine, now people didn't have radio. The children were not reading newspapers. Families, most families were not even reading newspapers or anything. So they had very little access to information. So I always have to hone in on what they're seeing and what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, what they're listening to, what they're hearing, what they're sensing, what they're smelling, what they're tasting, what they're touching. I use my senses an awful lot when I write. And, um, and it has stood me in good stead. And all the lessons I've learned from doing the first few books have helped me go through, you know, to make a career in writing and to keep writing. And I've stuck, I haven't changed from that. But I think what you're saying about, though, and not talking down to children, I, I can't stand books that talk down to children. And I remember reading them when I was younger myself. And then you were, some of them you read and you enjoyed, but then when you go back and look at them, like they're very dated. And you said, how did I really be obsessed with these books when I was a kid? But um, I think, I think, you know, an adult can pick up my children's books and read them and they'll probably enjoy them as much as a as a child will. I mean, that's not the intention, but I don't really think, I just write the book as a book I want to write and I want to tell the story as simple and as easy as possible. And it's not in my, um, it's not in my job or my business as a writer to make a book difficult for a child to read. I want, because reading is so hard. Some of my children had reading problems when they were younger. Reading is so hard. I was a really good reader. I was reading before I went to school and I'm a, still a fantastic reader. I drive everybody mad. I read so quick. Even if you're on a plane and you're reading a book in front of me, I'd be looking over the seat trying to read what you're reading. I'm just <laughs> terrible. Um, but but there are lots of people who are not good readers and they're slow readers. My husband's a slow, slow reader. And, you know, and they're and, and children like you. I want people to read my books. I have to make, I make them as simple and as clear and as uncluttered as I can, because my job is to make a story that as many people can read as possible. I don't want to be doing fancy literary hoops or putting in, 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 in things that one have to look at, what does that word mean, you know? And if a thing is too complicated, 
it slows the reader down. And the really good thing is to pick up a book, whether you're an adult or a child, that you're so gripped by it that you, you want to keep reading. You don't want to go to bed. You want to read it quickly. But if it's all cluttered, you say, oh, God, I'll do, no, I'll do it another day. I'm too tired for that now. I'll do it another day. And so I always try to keep my work uncluttered and pace. And pace, actually, a lot of people don't realise how important pace is in a book. To, to move the things along, you know, uh, and up and down and move it. So it's really important to me. And I haven't changed that. And I, I mean, maybe it's innate that I've learned this as I've gone along. I don't know. But I mean, I just really enjoy writing. And I try to, I mean, sometimes if I'm writing something, I'm very slow doing it. It's an indication to me it's not working. And I just say, I have to change this now and I have to take another approach to this chapter or this book I'm working on or starting to work on because it's because it's often happens at the start of a book that you haven't got to know the character properly. Or sometimes you've just given the character the wrong name. And the character will not like being given the wrong name. It affects you, affects me as a writer. I said, what? name do you want I have to go through all the names and then I said oh god actually that's the name that was right for that person why did I call her or him the other name and then I change it so it's really important to um just find the right level when you're working but I think anybody who wants to write for children keep it as simple and uncluttered as possible because you really want as many people to read your book as possible because when you write a book that's fantastic but to become a real book, someone has to read it. And you want as many people to read your books as possible. So um, the easier you make it for children to read. And, you know, there are children who are fantastic readers and they'll fly through a book in a few hours. That's great for them. But there are lots of people who are going to be slow as anything. And, you know, and then when I get great um, thing from my winter schools, you know, and actually kids write to me too. And so many children still, still to this day, under the Hawthorne Trees, the first proper book they read on their own, or they finished, you know, they finished, it wasn't a class book they could read, but they finished it themselves, or they went on to one of the other books and read it. And um, I think that's, and that it's funny because that has happened even in translation in different languages and French and Spanish and different things um, that that um, kids can still read it. That obviously a good translator, so I don't know, but they've trans managed to keep that simplicity and unclutter in the translation as well, you know. Absolutely. I mean, I I mentioned this in, a, in an email I'd sent originally to O'Brien when I was trying to get you on the show, but I'm releasing my first novel this year. Oh, um, brilliant. It's, it's, with a, it's with a small independent publisher. It isn't by a big publisher at all. It's, it's one based in the UK, um, but still an amazing, exciting time for me. I mean, this is something I wanted to do going way, way back to childhood. And I think so much of what you said has really kind of resonated with me and it's been you know they're, they're very nice words of comfort about kind of keeping it uncluttered and, and that's kind of what I've tried to adapt to my own writing it's it's maybe slightly older children I think maybe 11 12 plus almost maybe kind of late 8 to 12 going into the teen kind of range yeah. um but but those those words are, are fantastic to hear and this is kind of I guess more of a, a kind of personal question for me but yeah. um something that I've kind of found with the writing process and now that I'm about to, to release the book I haven't got an official date yet but it'll be sometime in the middle of this year I think is the kind of idea of like imposter syndrome when it comes to releasing the book it's no matter how many times you know the publishers say it's good enough or I give it to other people to read and they like it and I've done many many drafts but I always have this sort of fear that is it not good enough like it, it just feels so surreal I guess the first time did you have a, a similar experience going into I guess your first book and how do you kind of overcome that because as excited I, as I am I do think there's a little bit of a confidence issue with me being like all right it's, it's good enough for for people to read it now and to, and to go out into the into the world. Uh, well I did have a bit of a confidence issue about it well first of all because as I said the book wasn't written for you know for you know I, I wrote it just for my for my for my daughter mm. and then it was taken on and then in the fact I've been flagged it was difficult but I did also have a thing I was writing about history history is tricky and usually historical novels be they for adults or children are written by people who you know have a background of historical research or teachers or academics or you know as they then go and write a novel based on it and they be kind of established um historians kind of mostly or, or you know writers of that genre so i was very conscious when my book came out which very different from you you know but i was very conscious i was a mum at home with four small children and i was really expecting the literary world to turn on me and say, how dare you? You know, who do you think you are? You're a, 
unknown who's at home with four small children. Okay, they, they don't know I've been mad on writing since I was a kid. I was getting published in newspapers and magazines and everything since I was very small. They don't know that. But but I really felt that the knives would be out for me. And I actually do remember, I won't say who he is, but he's one of our most famous Booker Prize winners. And he actually, I think he was at my book launch and um, he actually said to me, watch your back. He actually said to me, watch your back. And I was like, what the hell does he mean, watch my back? Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that the people would be, you know, and so I, I, I think people got a big shock that I would actually dare to write this book. So, um, but then I just, I suppose I've, I've got um, thick skin that I let things slide off me. And I look at the positives, not the negatives. And, um, but I remember when <laughs> Under the Whole Country came out and there was a big, you know, always hoping I get reviewed in a paper and my husband might, might publish it. Oh, hopefully I might get a review or something, you know. But I remember the day it came out and then my publisher phoned me and said, actually, the Irish Times are going to it was a, a Saturday or two after it came out. They said, oh, they're going to review it. And, and the lady who was reviewing it was a, a notoriously, you know, you know, really would go through books, you know. And I said, oh, flipping hell, why would I get her, you know. Mm. Even though I then afterwards became friendly with her. But anyway, I remember the time and I, I, I was really panicked. And in those days, my where I lived, people used to get their newspapers different. So I had my, my older daughter all keyed up. I said, if it's bad... I said, you're to run up the road and take everybody's newspaper off their doorstep so none of our neighbours can read it. I actually had her all set to do this, you know, the girl I'd written it for, Mandy. I was I don't think it'll be that bad. And I said, no, it could be really bad. You know, we have to be prepared that, you know, we'll, we'd be really attacked. I was so nervous. And then I remember, I remember just opening it and it was, um, it was I always remember it about books and said, better examples of how to write and how not to write, what to write about and what not to write about and something else. And I said, oh, for heaven's sake, I'm sunk. She was, she was, compared, she was reviewing two books, my book and another book. And I remember I said, oh, my God, I'm, I'm finished now. I haven't even started writing my career. I'm gone. And then I read it down. And it was awful because she tore the other book to shreds and said my book was brilliant. But I remember it was on a hairpin, which way it could go. And just, you know, when your book comes out, just remember you know, you can get someone who's going to love the book and you can get someone who's not going to like the book. And you just have to, you have to get kind of thick skin and, and let it roll off you because um, the really, the real judgment is, does your book sell and do children buy it and do they read it? And are they reading it two years, three years, five years, 10 years down the road? Has it become a book they love and they like or they tell their friends about? And uh, so, but I remember getting the brilliant review and it was such a relief, but I felt like people would be, thing and but then I was very lucky I got such a reaction then and it built up didn't build on day one but it built up and actually that's the perfect way for a book to come out and build up over time because if you have a flash in the pan it might be gone and, and the market has changed compared to my day you know, if a book came out you'd be there in the bookshop for the year now I'm very lucky my books are still in the shops but a lot of books come out and they only are given a space of two weeks or three weeks or four weeks to sell and then they're gone so if you don't make an impact, then it's very difficult. And the, the, because there's so many books coming out from Ireland and from America and England and all over, especially the big English publishers for children, um, like there's no space for you. They're pushing you out, you know, and uh, because they know the big hitters are coming in, David Williams and, you know, um, all these books that the kids are really reading and a big series of books, you know, which are almost like in our day with comic books, but they're like comic books made a bit, you know, bigger. So because we used to buy comics when we were younger. And uh, but now so that's so the space is very hard to get into. They so have to be prepared for that, you know, but um, I don't think it, I mean, I think if you manage to get a publisher to publish your book, that is yeah, because the market is so difficult now compared to my day when I started off. Because I was one of the first writers of Ryan Press published with children's writers. Now they publish way more. Probably I mightn't even get into a Brian Press now if I sent a book. You know, I don't know. And uh, if the, the publishing world has changed. I mean, I hear it from my agent. I hear it from other writers. I hear it from people. I hear it from my publishers themselves. The writing world has changed. I'm lucky I'm already part of it. But if I was starting off now, it would be far more difficult for you to get published now is a huge step, a huge thing. And just enjoy it. Uh, but be thick skinned. If anybody says they, they, they don't like it, you know, just that's they don't like it, but other people might like it. And just don't let that get you down. And you're not an imposter. You've sat down. And I don't know how long it took you to write your book, but whether it took you three, if it took 12 weeks like me or a year or two years, you put time and effort and energy into a book. And it's 
it's a, a creative, it's a love of, of art and writing to create a book. I mean, no one um, writes a book for the money or for anything like that now. It's a, a love you do it for and you've done it and you manage to get to the next page. So really wish you luck with your, with your publishers, you know, get it out there is the main thing, you know. Definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah, I started I started writing it in 2020 when the lockdown hit. Um, so it's it's definitely it's been a minute. But I, th- I think similar to you, you know, I didn't you know, I was I was 20 at the time. I didn't write it thinking it was ever going to be published. I literally started writing it because it was an idea that I had for a long time. And, you know, I had nothing else to do because it was lockdown. So I was yeah. like, I'll just go for it and I'll just start writing it and and see what happens. So I'm, you know, more than anything, I'm just excited. And I think going forward, what would be good for my writing is that I'll have the first book behind yeah. me. So any, you know, mistakes I make or things I look back and wish were different or even, you know, some constructive reviews might come in handy. Yeah, I'll definitely send you on more when, when I know, when I can. Yeah, it's great. Well, congratulations because to get, I mean, the, the, the publishing world has changed to become much more cutthroat, mm-hmm. much more, um, you know, uh, results driven and market driven and series driven. So it has become different. I'm probably a bit of an old dinosaur now at this stage. I'm still writing mm-hmm. away and enjoying it. But I love writing and I love making books and I'm going to keep on going as long as I keep, I don't get, even if I don't publish them, I'll still be doing them. I'll be making books like I did when I started off uh, just for the fun of it because I love doing it. So um, I think once you enjoy it, it doesn't become too much of a chore or a, or a worry um, or stress, you know, because I've, I've seen over my long career of writing, I've seen lots of people drop out, you know, because they were disappointed or something happened with a book or something happened with a publisher. I mean, I've had rows my publishers, but I just let it roll off me. Just say, I'm writing. My job is to write. Whatever goes on outside after that is out of my control, really. I just, my job is to get, turn on my computer, get out my notepad and write. And um, the rest, keep my head down, get my book finished from start to finish, whether it takes me 12 weeks or a year or nine months or three years. The big adult books took three years, you know, Hungry mm-hmm. Road and Rebel Sisters. Um, and just concentrate on what I like doing and uh Hope that the rest of the people who work at publishing with me, my editors, my publicity, my marketing, my design people, you know, that they all row in and, and help it to be the best book. But I've I've given them the best story I can give them because I work on it and work on it and work on it to shape it, you know. And then after that, then and then as I said, look and fate being the right book at the right time, that the right person reads it, a good reviewer, or somebody likes it or tells somebody, you know, and or you get a bit of publicity, they're all help. But look and fate are part of it too, you know. Absolutely. And, and with the publisher I'm with as well, you know, they're, as I said, they're a small publisher. They're not a Penguin or a Brian or anything like that, but they're all about, I think, giving people um, a chance, you know, to start off with. Are they in Ireland or outside Ireland? They're based in the UK. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're London company. So it's, yeah. it's a nice That's one right. to, to start off with. And yeah, just looking forward to seeing it where, where, where it all goes. But um, what, what I, what I love about your work is that not only are you writing for children, but I know at the moment you're, kind of involved in a campaign encouraging children to to read particularly Irish writers with the discover Irish children's books yeah, yeah it's yeah. really important because um you know the market has become so um driven by these massive juggernaut series you know mm-hmm. that are taking over the bookshops and to get your spe- and actually you know in fairness over all the years of my career the bookshops have been fantastic and you'd go in and you'd see you know nothing big head of it see a shelf of Marie Con McKenna books or all you know the Irish writers but since um, the market has changed over the last 10 years and especially I think since COVID mm-hmm. the, the bookshops have just gone into oh like we know we're going to sell you know whatever I don't know how many I, you probably know about bookshops, but I don't know how many issues of Diary of a Wimpy Kid there are. There are 16 books or 18 books or 20 books. I don't know. But if, he, but if you if you were a small children's apartment and you have to put 20 Diary of a Wimpy Kid out or 18, that's one shelf gone. And then we have David Wimes with another 10 books or 12 books. And then and then you're saying, well, oh, God, there's some really good, nice Irish children's books. Where are we going to fit them in? We might put in one copy here or one copy there. And then it doesn't. But I do notice now, Sarah Webb, my friend, started this campaign. And I've noticed now, because um, Sarah just, I mean, none of us had looked at it or really noticed it. But Sarah looked at it then and she actually went and got the figures and armed herself with that and approached the bookshops. And now a lot of the bookshops now, they were doing it up before Christmas. Hopefully they'll continue it on. They actually went back to have a shelf of Irish children's books because it was great then to see like we, we all got our space, which was lovely. And you want you want to be in that space when your book comes out too, you know. So it was great. But um, you have been very mindful. Because if you go into a bookshop, they'll have, you know, Irish history, Irish interest. And they they all do that. But they seem to have forgotten to do 
Irish children's books for some reason. They had all Irish interests, you know, about the famous Irish writers or Irish walks or guides or whatever, you know, Irish interest and Irish thing. But for some reason, Irish children's books have been squeezed out of that. And now um, the campaign was kind of a slow thing from, from the summer, but gradually came on. So by Christmas, then, but I'm do hoping now, and I was saying to Sarah, I lunched through there a while ago, and I said, I hope it's not going to, that they will keep on this, you know, because it's really important for Irish publishing. And we have fantastic publishers here, and we have fantastic writers. And I'm also lovely to see this huge growth in, in picture books, Irish picture books, you know, that are good enough to go all around the world and are going around the world with amazing illustrators and writers and author illustrators as well who are doing the two. So it's, and, and they, they're very expensive because I did a few picture books when I started off and there was no question of any Irish publisher ever doing them because it was co-editions with UK and US, Little Brown and that and ABC. And um, so uh, all the all the picture books I did all originated in UK and US. They weren't, and they might've had some copies here, but they, they weren't, the market was international, which really it is too. But now to have the Irish publishers originating them here, you know, that if they're, they're, they're taking on really good artists. And O'Brien Press was always fantastic on art. I remember he went into O'Brien Press, the original building, the office. I mean, Michael O'Brien used to collect art. His whole, every wall in the place was covered in art. I mean, I think he just had a real problem giving, you know, <laughs> getting pictures or getting them away. He kept wanting to own everything he, he had. I think he's, he's given it all now, I think, to the National Library. But um, it was just incredible. So he had a real feeling for artists. And that now has continued with O'Brien Press because they're doing more picture books, which I think is great. But we need to have space for people. I mean, if you can't see it, you can't buy it, you know. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's it's important, like as, as Sarah Webb has illustrated, for children to see themselves in the characters that are in Irish children's books. But also, I guess, to know that it is, um, you know, the publishing industry is alive and it's it's well in Ireland. Because I think when I was young, my idea of, of an author was, you know, someone like Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, where you had to be, you know, a multimillionaire and you had to live yeah. in the States and that it wasn't. I was like, I didn't. There was very few besides yourself and maybe one or two others. There was very few, I guess, Irish authors that I knew. And they're out there and they're amazingly talented. But I think children aren't always shown that. And then henceforth, I don't think they always think of writing as a, you know, as a viable career then going forward. Yeah, because I go to schools, I always tell them about, you know, you can write, you can write for a film, you can write for TV, you can write for ads, you can write for newspapers. As I said, writing, you know, they just think writing is writing books and some of them may not want to write books. But when I start saying, you know, every film you watch, somebody wrote it. Every television program you watch, somebody wrote it. Every computer game you, you play, somebody wrote it, you know. So every song you listen to, somebody wrote it. And then you can see them all sitting and saying, what? This is actually, we didn't realise, like, we're so, words are all around us and and somebody with a pen or a pad or a computer has done it. And when they start to think of it, then they realise how, what a big world of writing there is. And, I mean, you're very lucky if you get then as as an adult to crop and be part of that big world of writing. So, um, but but, but they don't realise that. But as I said, the exposure to, um, you know, Literature, art, you know, literature, art, you have film, it's doing very well, art, film and everything and music and all that. It's really important. And the arts are so important for children to have access to and to realise that's part of them and part of us. You know, it's not just some outside thing they're not involved in, you know. So it's very important to, to do that. So but for someone like, you know, you, young writers like you coming up now, it's great to see getting published and getting your book out there. You know, it'd be brilliant. And in regards to your own writing, then you've kind of you've spoken a bit about, you know, the, the the pace that you write at and things like that. But do you have any sort of, I guess, essentials when you when you write? Do you have to have, you know, a certain drink? Do you have to have coffee? Do you have to write at a certain time of day? Are you kind of religious in the way you write or can you do it on the fly whenever? Well, I'm not. Uh, one thing I one thing I, I, I learned because when my children were small. I was writing everywhere. I remember writing in the car. I'd have a pad in the car and a pen. I'd be waiting for them to come out of school or I'd be dropping them somewhere. They're going to a match or a ballet lesson or something. And I always had pads and pens. And I learned, I started off, I didn't have a study. I, had, I wrote the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I wrote up in bed on my lap. I uh, <clears throat> wrote in a car. I can write in a train. I can write in a plane. I can write anywhere traveling. But I, I can't write outside of Ireland. Wow. I, can write, I can write down in West Cork. I can write in Dublin. I can write going on the train to Belfast or Cork. But ask me to go to Spain. I've tried it. I've gone out to France. I've gone out to Spain. I've gone out to different countries. I've bought my pad and pen. I've even, I don't even have a laptop. I borrowed a laptop and uh, went out and I could write nothing. I seem to have to be in Ireland to write. 
I don't know. Is it just like I'm, I'm like a big tree with my roots? My roots have to be here in my home 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 country to write. I've tried it. Because, oh, look, you can have our house or our villa in Spain and go out there and relax and work for it. I've, I couldn't. Then there's always these things, you know, they have writers offered things abroad to go out for a few weeks to write and have calm, you know. Can't do it. Just can't do it. I've tried it. So that's the thing I have. Now, I do like when I start off writing. I like to have start off a new pad or a pen. I get a, a, like a, a brand new, like I used to get manuscript pads. They're quite hard to get now. And a nice black felt pen or, a, or my fountain pen. And I'd write with that. And then I'd start playing out with that. And then I'd go onto the computer. So it's very easy on the screen because I remember the older days when I was writing and typing, you made a mistake and the whole page was gone. Are you there with your thing trying to correct it, you know? But but, but it's great now if I change a name or want to change something and just say find and replace. And it's brilliant. It's the kind of routine and rhythm I've got into over all the years. I don't have any coffees or teas or anything, but I do like when I finished a book. Because um, usually I, I would write in the morning. I'm not good in the afternoon. I get tired in the afternoon, especially now as I've got older. But when my children were small, I was only running and racing and going to classes and bringing them and collecting from school into homework. So I could never write in the afternoon. And I've got into that. I write in the morning, get up early, have my breakfast, get dressed, get on the computer, get out my pad and write. And then afternoon is toffee. I might do emails or maybe a correction or two or edit on the afternoon, but not nothing creative. And then at night... You know, especially when I'm halfway to three quarters way to a book, I'm literally night writing at that stage. I'm up till two in the morning, three in the morning, you know, working really late. And I don't feel time at all. I actually don't feel time. But when I do finish a book and I finally print it out, I love to be like it's two or three in the morning or four in the morning, whatever time it is. And I go in and sit in a chair in my kitchen. We love a big cozy chair in my kitchen, a big blue chair. And I sit in that. I make myself a cup of tea, take out the whole book. I print it all out at that stage. That's chaos printing out chapters of books and I have to lay them out on my kitchen table when I have it all sorted out anyway or on the floor and then I get it put together and sitting down and reading it as a reader, not like a writer, but as a, a reader and um, I'm realising it has worked. The hard work, the you know me hitting crazy hours, the it, it has, I've somehow managed to pull this story together and got it to work. And it's such a satisfying thing. And I I have my lovely cup of tea, a sugary cup of tea. And I say, oh, I did this. It's done. You know. Bit of a fun question. I saw on your website that you um, visited the Andy Warhol gallery only recently, I believe. Yeah. The pictures looked amazing. I was just wondering, uh, you know, your work aside, what creativity and art kind of mean to you? Is there other arts and entertainment that you enjoy just purely as a, as a fan, whether it be music, film, like what kind of role does, does art and entertainment have in your life? Yeah, well, I love art now. And I mean, I, I would have been, when I started off, I was drawing and painting. And probably if I wasn't a writer, I, I might have gone the route of painting and drawing. I'm not that good, but um, I was never that good. But when I started off making picture books for my children, I drew them myself. But then my I'm not trained artist and my lines broke up to go to print. They broke up because I wasn't, I was drawing in little squiggly bits. I wasn't able to draw like smooth, good lines at all, which was a bit annoying. But anyway, so I do love art and I really appreciate art. I know quite a lot of artists and um, I love working with artists and that. So I'm very intrigued. I go to a lot of art exhibitions and things like that and enjoy it. I go to theatre a bit, go to the cinema a bit. I love TV. I really love TV now and I'm a mad reader and I know so many writers and, you know, some get reading books by friends or new books coming out. So I'm interested. And then I'm interested in the garden, the big garden. I know the weather's but too bad now for me to do the garden, but I love getting out to the peace and quiet in the garden. I can go out there and lose myself for hours with a big garden and, um, time just you know and next time I'm out and I'm there and next time I said oh my god it's getting dark and I'm still out in the garden I better come in you know and um, because I love I enjoy that and I'm very lucky I have loads of friends and I've had my friends since I was you know since I was very some of my friends since I was four since I started school and um, I have really lovely friends and I see them and then I have my family and my grandchildren and everything so a very rich life it's trying to get time for everything but I've had to make I always one thing that's very important when you're writing is to make time for your writing. Because those people come up to me and say, I want to write a book. Because everybody can write a book. And it's true. Everybody could write a book if they wanted to. And then I they said, would you be able to advise me and help me? And then beginning, I used to say, oh, come down to my house and I'll talk to you about it. And then they'd say, I said, now, I was already really busy with all my writing and publishing and doing stuff in my publishing and going to talk to schools and things and colleges. And then they'd say, I said, well, come down on Tuesday. Oh, no, like I play golf on a Tuesday. Oh, no, I'm going, I'm going to tennis on a thing. Oh, I have to go shopping on that day. And then basically they had no day. 
And uh, I said, well, kind of in a way, other things like that have to go. You have to say, because they're really, when you know yourself from writing, it's just bum on the seat, computer on or pad at your, in front of you. It's uh, other things have to go. If you want to write, you have to sit down and do it. Now, I just have one final question. And I, you kind of touched on it a bit throughout the interview. So I, I like to ask all my guests when they create, who do they create for? And I know for you, you obviously write for children, you write for adults, and obviously you get feedback from your publishers. But first and foremost, if you're writing a if you're writing a book, if you're writing a story, who do you write it for? For myself. Very selfish for myself. I'm only thinking of myself. And I'm the person in the book. And um, I'm the person that's going through all the things. And and the greatest compliment, I don't, certainly don't think of publishers. And I don't think of readers to be at that stage. I mean, when I, back when I put it out at the very end, then I'm saying I'm reading it as a reader. But when I'm writing it, I'm writing it myself to make it work for myself. And the story as clear as I can write it. So I, I don't write it for anybody else, only myself. It's, it's quite, and I think that's actually the best way to write. I mean, I wrote Under the Hawthorne Tree for my daughter. But really, Riley was me when I was writing it. Peggy was me. And, you know, but I was writing it. Very, I wanted to keep it very clear. But the one thing you have to have the direction of, like you're an adult writing for children. So you have to be a child. And I am quite childish. People are always jeering me. But I'm very childish. I'm not serious enough. I think I think sometimes because of my books are very serious, I bounce into a school and the children are really shocked because they kind of say to me, we thought you'd be dark. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, why would they want me to be dark? And then I, they want me to be like, it's skinny. They think, some of them think actually I lived through the famine and it's in my memoir. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 that's not me. I didn't oh live God. then, you know, they get confused. So they don't expect, um, you know, well, now they do because they see my photo and they see my website and things like that. But when I started off, like I was not what they expected to be funny and joking with them. And, you know, and they did not expect that at all. So uh, it's very different, you know, with, with um, what, what people expect with your book. But no, I write for myself and, um, and I certainly wouldn't be writing for publishers. And I think that's a really big mistake of people are telling. Now, I know a lot of writers are commissioned for things because they're an expert on this or they're expert on that or they're very good at something like that. That's different. But my type of writing, but other people, it's different. Everybody has their own way of writing. And, you know, I just write for myself and um, then I'm happy with the book when I've finished it. And I feel I've given it as best I can. And then I'm very lucky because as I'm finishing a book, my head is always crowded with stories. I said I have years of stories ahead of me. I hope I live long enough to write them all. But as I'm writing and I'm finishing the last few chapters of a book and, you know, that stage, I'm up two and three, three o'clock in the morning, crazy, craziness. Mm-hmm. And um, but this, the new characters are coming in for the new book. And I'm going, for heaven's sake, will you get back out of my life? I haven't finished. I know I told you I'm nearly finished, but I'm not finished yet. Go back. And I say, because I, ha- I can only do one book at a time. I know some writers, actually some male writer friends of mine, and they could write one book in the morning and one book in the evening but I can't do that I can only concentrate on the one book and get it done and so you know I can't I can't let other characters come in and distract me or other 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 things and also when I'm writing especially the last half or two quarters of a book when finishing a book I can't really read any fiction by anybody else because I don't want their voice to um uh, you come into my writing I have to be very careful I can read non-fiction and mm-hmm. research and all that yes. or you know something totally different but anybody who'd be writing fiction there would be anyway just you know a normal good book i you know even i love writing i i reading i have to just say no not not at the stage i'm at now because like even if i went down to court now for a few weeks i'd come back with a cork accent so like <laughs> i think that would happen if i was reading like somebody really exactly. good and i don't want that to happen you know that i next thing i pick up a cork accent and people say god i've tried to keep my own accent in my books true to me that you could pick up any book be it an adult book of mine or a children's book and you'd know probably in the first page or two that it's my book but because my style is kind of recognizable mm-hmm. And the way I write and the simplicity. So that's, I I love um, American fiction. And I remember reading American fiction when I was younger. And it was the clarity and the simplicity of it I absolutely loved, you know. And a lot of the really good children's writers are American, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I relate to that completely when I'm writing, when I'm working on my novel, like I could never read, I guess, anything similar. I actually do have a lot of other passions in the creative world. I can maybe work on short film projects and things like that on the site. But when I'm, 
solely focused on my writing I find I especially can't read like mine's a children fantasy books or anything fantasy anything for younger readers like you I think I have to focus um squarely on on non-fiction and things like that because it is quite easy for other voices to get into your into your head a bit you know and, and kind of cloud your vision so or even your la the language the other person's writing or their way Definitely. of writing or their flow and if it's different you know so you have I think you have to protect yourself from that especially mm -hmm. when you're trying to keep a very clear vision of what you're doing and also to keep this clear uncluttered thing in your book you know what anybody else cluttering into your book you know what I mean that you want to keep it like that and, and protect your book protect your work I wrote, I wrote a book called A Deep Dark Wood and I absolutely adored writing it as fantasy it's mm -hmm. one of my, my main fantasy books and I Oh my god, it was such a joy to write. And then I remember yeah. I left it open, I could do a second one. But I don't know, I think my publishers weren't keen on fantasy at the time and they said, Oh, look, you know, and I was dying itching to do a second one, and then they didn't really want to do another one. So I said, Oh golly, that's a thing. But it's still there. I still have feather yeah. coats hanging in a tree waiting to be done. And then Fairy Hill, my new book, is kind of partially fancy, but yes, also quite real too, as well. Yeah. So yeah. kind of a mixture. But um, but uh, I I love fantasy. And I like reading. I enjoy reading fantasy. I'd like to read your book now when it comes out. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd like to read it. Obviously, yeah. Yes, yeah, for sure. Well, if you're, ever, if you're ever in Cork or anything, you know, I work in the the children's section in in Dubray Cork, so I'm not sure how often you get up there. Maybe for some promotional things, but. You know where to find I, was, I was actually down in Cork and um, I was in the Central Library in Cork there in um, October. I was down in Cork and actually went, I was down in Cove Library, I was in Carrigaline Library, the Bishopstown Library. Mm. I was in that, I looked, did look at the bookshops, but I didn't actually didn't know you were there and I was going to say hello to you when I was there, but I did run in, I, I always run into the bookshops when I'm in, in a town. Even if I went down somewhere in the middle of nowhere, I always go to the bookshops and have a look and see how things are going because I love bookshops. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really rewarding as well because I've always been a creative person, but I think not until working at the bookshop did I get to see maybe more of the, the business side and the behind the scenes of, you know, ordering yeah. books and stock and things like that. So uh, it's just been really, really rewarding. So, you know, never know. I might see you at some sort of bookshop yeah. or library. Yeah. <laughs> just I, hope so. I hope so, Daniel. I hope so. I'm dying to, to read your book, yeah? Definitely. Brilliant. Marita Connell McKenna, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. If, you, if I can do anything to help promote it now when it comes out, let me know, okay? Hi, I'm Marisha Conlon McKenna, and this has been Creatively Me. A big, big thank you to Marita Conlon McKenna for joining me on this week's episode. It's definitely one I'll always remember. Particularly all that she was saying about making art for yourself first and foremost really resonated with me. I think particularly in today's social media world where it can feel like there's a lot of eyes on you, it's a really positive reminder to be content with your own work first and foremost. So what did you think of this week's episode? I'd love to hear. I'm over on Instagram at media if you ever wish to share your thoughts. There's always questions and polls to be found underneath these episodes as well, so I'm always eager to hear from others and get a conversation going. Next Friday will be another really, really exciting one that I'm absolutely buzzing to share. So until then, thanks as always for listening and for tuning in to Creatively Me.